Greetings, and welcome to Ashram's podcast series. Today, Lee Hamilton, Senior Vice President of Health Management Services at AGI Consulting in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, presents Tee Up an Effective Cross-Functional Team. I've experienced a lot of successes, but honestly, a near disaster with putting together a cross-functional team. So I thought this would be a good topic to share. More on my near disaster later. Let's get a few basics out of the way. Since we're focusing on the cross-functional team, let's define it. A cross-functional team is one that's assembled from across numerous departments in the organization, usually with members who have diverse job functions. Its mission is to accomplish a defined task or a narrow set of tasks, such as improving a product or service. These teams have a shelf life. By that, I mean they'll usually disband when the task is done. The cross-functional team, then, is clearly not, say, a department or unit-level work team. For ease, in the rest of my remarks, when I say team, I mean a cross-functional team. Okay, a refresher for most of you, but very quickly. Why is it so vital that you put one of these cross-functional teams together in the first place? Part of the answer is the same for any type of team and that is that you can't get the work done or achieve the results you want by doing it alone. You need people power. All right, let's hone in on why you need a cross-functional team as opposed to, say, your immediate work group. By definition, your work group shares the same or similar knowledge and skills. Your work group, which we know is often called your team, your work team, perform similar functions. That's the whole idea. They need to be in lockstep. So logically, your immediate work group is not cross-functional. And what you're after with a cross-functional team, again for this podcast, your team, is ideas, input, expertise from outside your like-minded everyday work team. With that common understanding of a cross-functional team and its value and purpose, let's go ahead and tee up our team. We're going to start building one. To tee up is defined as making detailed arrangements or preparations. So I like the term tee up because it takes into account that getting ready to hit the ball and not just taking the first swing. So an analogy would be in a golf game, you have to decide which club you're even going to use before you consider swinging the club. In teeing up your team, there's actually two ways you can go. And I'm going to discuss them both, but most of the time will be spent on forming a new team. Most of the time you'll start from scratch because you've got a new project or a unique task and you're just ground up. But there are times when you, for some reason, already have a team in place, but you're going to overhaul that team. A number of reasons. It could be it's not working. It could be because the team's job is changing substantially. But you believe you have a solid core within your existing team, and so you're just going to rework it to fit your latest task or need. In either scenario, a whole new team or a reworked team, the strategies for teeing up the team are similar. Okay, so how do you begin? Well, not by asking who has some free time or interest in the project and would like to be on the team. It's tempting, but you've got to step back and go through a thoughtful process, best described as contemplating your team. And that's about taking ample time to think about whether you even need a team. 
Maybe you and your work unit or work team actually have the skill sets and other resources to accomplish the task. Maybe you don't have the skill sets and resources in your work team. A new team still isn't the answer. A cross-functional team is not what's going to help you. Could be you just need a good project manager from within or outside the organization. Maybe a consultant is the way to go. But for the purposes of our discussion today, we're going to assume that you do need a team. So the next thing you're going to do is dissect exactly what the component parts or tasks for the team will be. What are the specific deliverables and over what period of time? The so-called how much by when test. The answers to these questions are going to greatly impact the choice of who you bring on to the new team. Another important initial consideration has to do with risk analysis. That is, you want to consider the risk implications of not forming a highly effective team. Well, for example, if the team is going to conduct, let's say, a root cause analysis, but the team isn't highly effective, you really run a risk of never finding the real root cause. Or if the team has too steep of a learning curve about the subject matter, that could really delay the project's completion, which of course cuts into your anticipated revenue. Or it could delay getting some critical new safety measures in place. And I don't have to tell you the risks inherent in that. So those are just a few examples. All right, how about looking for a minute at what goes on in adjusting an existing team? Remember I talked about two ways to go when you're trying to form a cross-functional team to take on a new task or project. And that is that you can start from scratch or you can take an existing team and really give it a significant facelift. And I've actually found that there's not as much discussed in the literature about this kind of team rework as there is in forming new teams. But I've experienced this a lot because I've been in organizations with very limited human resources and the rework of a team was the only avenue I had. The goal in doing this rework of a team is what I'll call a good removal of a team member or team members, followed by an equally good reselection of new team members, and finally a good integration into the existing team. But integrating new team members is a topic really for a separate discussion on team dynamics. The key driver in your decision to adjust the team and salvage the team is this. You need to ask, is your team likely to reconcile its conflict or fix whatever serious problems, shortcomings, knowledge gaps it has by changing out one or two, maybe three members? In other words, a team in ongoing conflict most probably has issues and divisions that go beyond an ill-fitting team member or two, and you're probably looking at dissolving the team. But no, it doesn't mean when you start a new team that you can't recruit back some of the plum members of your former team. In fact, that's a good strategy because they can bring you some continuity and you have a head start on knowing how those team members operate. So either action, forming or adjusting a team, is critical to the long-term survival and success of your team. You know the adage, the strength of a team is greater than the sum of its individual members. It's trite, but it's so true. And so knowing this, you know, how important a team can be or how valuable it is, I have actually found myself cheating in my zest to get a team up and running. So what I've done is accepted anyone who's willing to fill a team slot and maybe call the meeting as fast as I can make instant oatmeal. But I don't recommend this instant approach. 
The fundamental message here that I'm trying to get across is this. No matter how well you've planned every other aspect, no matter how clear the team's objectives are, and no matter how effective the team's leadership is, ill-composed teams will flounder at best, and often they'll fail. And another consideration of a team that fails is the members of that ill-fated team. They'll often hesitate to serve later on on another team because they've had a bad experience. So that's another reason why it's worth putting that time up front into teeing up your team. So moving on, I want to talk about a few overall considerations that come into play before you even recruit and certainly well before you have your initial team meeting. There's three considerations I want us to look at along with related pitfalls and strategies of those considerations. And they are team size, team member characteristics, and third, recruiting the team members. Okay, so uh, let's talk a minute about size, and this is probably not new to most of you. We always talk about that ideal size of five to seven team members or committee members, and it really is a good number for a lot of purposes. For cross-functional teams, it's large enough to bring those cross-functional assets that you need but it's not too big so that you're struggling with finding a conference room that's large enough to accommodate everybody. Um, and it's not so big that quieter members get submerged, get lost. Practically speaking, organizations like the ones that I've worked for have limited human resources that they can commit, so the team just can't be too big. But you do have to tap into your organization's culture, and sometimes you'll find that the team size may be a bit larger than the five to seven because you have to satisfy some internal politics. Or it could even be a little bit smaller because you're in a very small workplace. On to the consideration of specific characteristics of team members. There are so many, but let's just look at some key ones here. Right at the core of your team, of course, are your subject matter experts or so-called SHMEs. Gotta have SHMEs. And I think my number one piece of advice, don't rely on one subject matter expert, even if they're like considered the expert of all experts, so to speak. Sure, have them on the team, but bring in a second, maybe a third subject matter expert so that you have differing opinions and nuances because of their differences in training and experience. And then, of course, you've got to leave room on your team for other types of experts, and these include communicators, relators, and connectors. The connectors are folks who tend to be flexible and also help you think through the team dynamics. A subject matter expert can and actually usually is serving in more than one role. So again, you have communicators, relators, and connectors. And subject matter expert may fill two or three of those roles. Let's flip it around for a second. So some of your team members are probably not subject matter experts, but they should have a decent amount of knowledge of the subject. Depending on the complexity of your subject and the difficulty of the task and other variables, you may want to also include a budding star, somebody that's maybe newer in the field. Maybe they haven't really served on a team before, and they can often bring you some fresh perspectives and you have a chance to groom them for future team service. It's really helpful because I feel like, in my experience, it seems like just when you're finished forming a team and you've got it up and running, you need to get another team going. So you can kind of roll people off of a team and onto another team in kind of a nice, smooth flow. 
So this doesn't sound daunting, right? And it, it can be very straightforward, particularly if you avoid pitfalls. Let me talk about a couple of those. Avoid recruiting people who strongly resemble yourself. I've made that mistake. And if you're unsure, the best way to do that is to ask a colleague and also a subordinate. They serve as your best mirrors so that you're not finding people that are like you. You may not even be on the team. You may be the leader. Maybe you're the champion. But you just don't want a bunch of yous on the team because that obviously defeats the purpose. It takes the cross-functionality out of cross-functional. Avoid presuming that somebody who does their job well, like their day job, does teams equally well. Not everybody is a good team member or a good team player. They may be excellent at what they do. You want to find out about your potential team members, prior experiences, be cognizant of any pattern of disruptive dynamics. The tee-up phase is the right, the best time to change your targeted recruits, the ones you're eyeballing to be on the team. And of course, reasonable amounts of conflict, as we know, are positive and they're going to happen in a team. But I'm referring to individuals who have kind of a reputation for having severely thwarted a team's efforts in the past. Those are the ones you want to avoid. Okay, and then the third consideration is the recruiting, and it is an art. It's the art of getting who you really need so you can accomplish what you really need. A funny thing happens on the way to, no, not the forum, but on the way to your team outcomes. And the funny thing is this, who you have on the team sometimes causes misdirection in what the team believes it ought to accomplish. You know, one person on the team has ideas, and those ideas, you know, they spread across the team. And what you can wind up with is a team that's derailed from the original outcomes. It's a creep. So recruiting itself, the invitation, is another key part of teeing up the team. An important pitfall, don't assume that those you're considering will all agree to serve. And there's two ways that you can find out that they're not willing to serve. One is they can say, I'm sorry, I can't serve. So you always want to have some alternates in the back of your mind that you can ask. But there is something more subtle that can happen, and that is that you can get this kind of soft yes, you know, well, if you really need me, if you can't find someone else, that kind of agreeing to serve. And you want to be careful about that kind of agreement to serve because you may not really be getting the commitment that you're going to need for your team to be successful. Okay, so a couple of tips for recruiting and common pitfalls. A good strategy I have found is to tout team membership as a privilege. So instead of seeking volunteers, any willing body, and that's often a pitfall because you lose control over forming the team, instead, it's a big deal. You know, thanks for your interest and kind of do like an informal taking in of some information about the potential individuals, you know, have a conversation with them, let them know there's a limited number of spots on the team and that sort of thing. And often that'll bring more interest to the table. You'll have more folks to choose from. Of course, you want to share the goals and objectives with potential team members to reduce uncertainty and help assure that you've got a good fit. And then get your leadership buy-in, not just from your own boss. Hey, boss, I need to form a cross-functional team because you've given me this project and I need different perspectives and I need help. But you actually have to have frank conversations with potential team members and often with their supervisors because the supervisors are going to be the ones who are ultimately going to pave the way to get those team members to your meeting. 
All right. As I said earlier, I had kind of a near disaster with a really critical team and a very large project that I had in an organization several years back. So let me tell you about what happened and what I learned from it. I was in a fairly large healthcare organization where I was part of the senior leadership, and I was the team champion. So I was responsible for teeing up the team. The organization had a mission-critical program starting up and assimilating into the organization. So the program was going to become an ongoing part of the way the organization did quality and regulatory reporting. And it had significant revenue potential attached to it. We had a solid plan. We had clear objectives. And those were widely shared before the team was formed. My job, again, was to key up this team, including finding a strong leader, which I did. So far, so good, right? But I made mistakes and I learned valuable lessons. From the outset, the team was stuck and I really like didn't understand what was happening. I put together a seven or eight member team, but right off the bat, I had two members who are hardly showed up or checked in and didn't seem to understand we were really relying on them. Communication was spotty, meetings were repeatedly rescheduled, sometimes canceled. On some occasions, substitutes were sent by the original team member or the team member supervisor to attend these meetings. And these substitutions weren't always discussed with the team leader. So you get the idea. Confusion, inefficiency, frustration. And the result, false starts, the project leader, team leader, both feeling unsupported, and there were costly delays in implementing the program. I realized, but not soon enough, that even though the CEO and key leaders were 100% behind the new program, they didn't fully understand the huge role the team would have to play in launching the project. Top leadership thought the team was mostly there to satisfy a regulatory requirement to have a team involved in the establishment of the program, instead of a team to serve as change agents across the organization. And that's what the program was really asking for, that there be a team that would be these change agents to get that program assimilated within the organization. And I had failed to pick up on the disconnect during the tee-up phase. I presumed senior leadership would make team service a priority. That was a costly mistake and presumption on my part. Then I made the situation worse by not making painful adjustments to the team membership to better align it with the scope and the responsibility mandated by the external program requirements. I tried to work with these revolving team members and, well, it bombed. I learned that each team member's supervisor, along with top leadership, have to have full buy-in and understanding of the team's scope. That may sound obvious, but what I mean is that you have to really assess where everyone is coming from, from the team members on up to and including the CEO. Whereas some leaders might think, for example, that the team will hold a monthly meeting and there'll be some inconsequential decisions that they'll make. The team leader, and like myself as team champion, might be meeting several hours per month, both in and out of a meeting room, and we're anticipating that the team will make significant recommendations and even decisions. I learned that although politics won't go away, there are ways to better manage the politics through educating the team leader and members and their supervisors. So looking back, I realized, bottom line, if I had teed up the team in the ways that I've described here in this podcast, the team probably would have succeeded. That's my story. I'd like to wrap up now just reviewing a couple of points that we've made here. 
To make the most of your cross-functional team, invest the time up front to outline not just what the team needs to do, but who would be the best team players. Invest the time in educating all involved about the job of the team and the scope. This is a path to assuring you get the work done and the results you're aiming for. Once you've recruited your team, it's really difficult to press the reset button. Changes to team composition, even early on, can make it harder for a team to focus and put it behind. But if necessary, make the painful adjustments in your team composition. So in the long run, teeing up a team composed of the right players promotes team success, which in turn delivers organization-wide results. And by the way, after pressing some reset buttons, learning some valuable lessons, making some mistakes, my organization was able actually to get the program implemented and turned it into a successful program. I'm hoping that through some of what we've talked about today, it'll be a little bit easier road for you to hoe. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Please visit ashram.org for more information and educational offerings.